another edition of Double Sheelix Podcast. This is Kayla. This is Sally. And we're here today with two very special guests to talk about wellness in graduate school. We are welcoming... Hi, this is Megan Ida. I am a fourth-year graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania in bioengineering. And hi, this is Michael Magarachi. I'm also a fourth-year graduate student in bioengineering. This is like a fourth-year party. We're really excited to have Megan and Michael on the podcast because... They both officially and unofficially have had a lot of roles surrounding student wellness and wellness in graduate school and what departments and other official organizations can do to ensure that students stay well in grad school. Yeah, so maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about what you're doing and specifically what are your wellness adjacent roles? Yeah, so I can start off by giving just like a brief Um, description of what Mike and I have done for Wellness for Penn, and then um, we can kind of go into specifics. But we both have had roles in our graduate association group at Penn in bioengineering. It's called GABE, Graduate Association of Bioengineers. And previous to last year, there wasn't really a wellness-specific focus in the group. Like, So we have a bunch of different subgroups of GABE, like career-focused and mentoring-focused and outreach, things like that. But there was never actually a specific wellness. And so that was kind of identified as like a need by us, and we can talk more about that. But last year, we kind of made an unofficial wellness chair and like a group of people who would put on wellness events to promote student wellness. And then this year, it came more, became more of an official thing. And Mike is in like that official role right now for uh, this academic year. Yeah, so um, like Megan said, she spearheaded the role with a couple of other uh, people in Gabe, became a more concrete position where there were clearer objectives. And it's actually me and two other people that are the wellness chairs kind of planning and organizing a bunch of wellness-focused events for the graduate students and really focus on ways that graduate students can take care of themselves better in both mentally, but also physically and like emotionally. We have some events planned that we can get into about like skill building, but also just to, I think a big goal of the wellness chair and like the wellness initiative at Penn is to just get the conversation started about kind of some of these harder issues that have been stigmatized in the past, like mental health and, you know, like how challenging graduate school really is. So another big thing is just getting, you know, getting the conversation started and kind of showing people that it's something that we all deal with. I guess to start up this conversation on wellness, for listeners who might not be in the know, for you guys, why is wellness in graduate school important? Yeah, so we actually have came up with a few thoughts on that. And so I think one of the things that has struck me most since I first started my PhD was that I feel like when you're going into a PhD, you really anticipate that it's going to be intellectually challenging. Like, you know, you're going to have to um, come up with experiments, think of new ideas, like synthesize literature to do that. But I think one thing that's not so anticipated is that it's emotionally challenging, too. And one thing that I found is that your effort doesn't necessarily always correspond to your success rate. And I know that's probably true in other professions and um other careers. But I think it really struck me in graduate school that sometimes people are just lucky and sometimes you're not. And I think that can be really emotionally challenging. Like You could have a great idea and it can be really well informed and you can work really hard and design great experiments. And sometimes it just doesn't work. And I think people go into graduate school expecting the intellectual challenge, but not the emotional one. And so I think that can affect wellness a lot in terms of how much you're attached to that work and how well it goes. And actually, I think Mike has a couple really good thoughts on that also. So like Megan said, grad school is just hard. And when you you get started, you don't really anticipate 
I mean, you anticipate the science being hard, but not necessarily about how like just challenging it's going to be to be disappointed in results and like have to adjust your expectations for what you're trying to do and what is really success in graduate school. And I think attachment to work is a really big one. And I, I think you guys have covered this in a previous podcast or, or like touched base on it. But I think, you know, when you attach yourself to your work and you find all your value in being a graduate student and how successful your experiments are, but then there's all these external factors you can't control, like luck or, you know, sometimes things don't work for reasons that we don't really know and we're trying to figure it out. That's like the point of research. But that that can be really hard and it can make, you know, people feel like they're not good enough for some reason. And then, of course, you always also see or hear about all of the success stories. You know, people don't publish their negative results. People don't really talk about like, yeah, this research took however many times it failed or you go to a talk for a professor and they have this like amazing story and they don't tell you this was like basically like 30 like PhD years of work and some of the students, you know, that work into it, what, it, like, you're only seeing the success story, not the, you know, not the whole path. So I think that's why it's really important for people to kind of understand, like, you know, what the actual process is. And wellness is really focused on, like, just being more, I guess, aware, aware, yeah, yeah. aware of these stressors. And I think, like, we talked about this last night, even that a lot of people in grad school are in their 20s. And that's just also an important time in your life like wellness is generally important. Like, and like sometimes your friends who are maybe not in graduate school are like doing things like, and like having, their lives are awesome. I mean, yeah. Like it's like, and that would be like that viewpoint in itself is maybe like a way that could lead to like feeling not well. Like they have a real job, like they are making a lot of money and we're in like academia where the job market is shrinking or something like that. And so I think like the, your twenties are just like a time where you like potentially change a lot. And like, there's a lot of external factors, but like also internal reflection that can be really important. And also I think related to that, just like how prevalent and how connected everyone is with like social media and like constant bombardment of like all the great things people are doing. And you could be sitting in lab, you know, looking at like the third time your experiment failed and your, your friends are like, Oh, traveling again for job for, for work. And you have all these like awesome pictures from social media. And then, you know, you know, not posting on your, you know, your Facebook, like, look at how how great my experiment turned out. Um, so I think that's yeah. like another thing. So that, the, like, just, the advice would be like, unfollow your social media, wonderful <laughs> oversharers. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, or maybe just, just be aware. Yeah. I think it's more be aware of the fact that everyone is only posting all the highlights and not necessarily the true story. There was one time like recently where I was at the confocal microscope, imaged a couple sites, realized it didn't work. And I took out my phone and just started scrolling through Instagram. And I was like, what am I doing? And like, this is like a coping technique right now. <laughs> and, like I acknowledged it, but kept doing it. And I was like, okay, just like finish the experiment, like go back to lab. Uh, so thinking about you guys in the roles of wellness that you've implemented in your department, what needs did you identify yeah. specifically? Like, how did you identify a lack of wellness or other reasons you were motivated to make official changes? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think it's like a hard question to answer too. I think one thing that we really noticed, and like Mike even brought this up to me before we even tried to start a wellness program last year, was that I think a PhD tends to be sometimes very lab specific. So I think we both think community is very important, like in a department. And sometimes if you are in a lab that has maybe a PI who's not in the department or there are no other grad students 
in the department in your lab, you tend to just be really lab centric. And that can be really good or it could be really isolating. It can be really good if you have a support system of other PhD students who are not so competitive and very collaborative. And um, if you have, have like an openness about your lab and are all friendly, but sometimes it can be really isolating. And I think we realize that sometimes with grad students in our department, if like they're over in like a whole nother part of campus. And so there's nothing that's really bringing them to where the most of the labs are or something like that. So it's a distance thing, but also just that grad students work really hard and sometimes they don't necessarily go out of the lab and interact with other grad students. And I also think when, especially like for some of our events, like with happy hours or other social events, when you get a bunch of graduate students together, it just becomes very obvious that everyone you know, they really care about their work and science is challenging. So, of course, there's a lot of stress and sometimes it's very you can see a lot of like kind of common themes like oh, my experiment's not working and I feel really stressed because there's this deadline coming up and I'm not going to be able to meet this deadline. And then my Ph.D. is going nowhere and I'm just going to get kicked out of the lab. And it's like there's like a very clear, like, you know, escalation of thoughts, I guess, that. And it also doesn't help that you have other people that kind of feel the same way and they kind of all start kind of complaining and like kind of it's like an like echo together. chamber. Kind of, yeah. Where your stress like, like ricochets off your peers and then they're stressed, they're stressing about something and you're like, shit, I should be stressing about that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's, I mean, I think also like everyone complains and sometimes that's therapeutic, definitely. But I think like one thing we noticed was you know, maybe there is something behind this and there's a sign of like, maybe people like, maybe they're not just joking around complaining. That's not just healthy complaining and therapeutic. Like there's actually like a lack of self-awareness of like, am I happy? Am I doing well? Things like that. I noticed with myself that like someone brought to my attention, like using like the words like should like all the time. Like, for example, I should have done more work yesterday or I should have worked over the weekend or should have done this, should have done that. And I've recently tried to be much more aware of like how often I say that and like make these potentially unrealistic like verbal exclamations of like what I should have been doing especially like if someone else were like you should have worked this weekend I'd be like no I worked plenty what are you talking about but like the whole self-talk aspect of that and that can be really contagious in a lab setting also well and I I don't know if uh you've noticed this but one of the things I've considered is definitely observe people complaining often and it seems like we are sort of creating some solidarity in the process like yeah oh yeah you know my thing worked badly today and your experiment didn't work either and now we're a team in this misery and it seems like maybe there's there's other ways to sort of connect and we're just really good at connecting on one level which is that things don't work yeah and I think that's important I think it's like I do think that that's an important connection to make which is why having friends in graduate school is great for being able to relate to them but I agree with you that like maybe the negative connotation needs to come out of that and it's just like a yes things didn't work that's acceptable and that's okay and let's talk about it instead of like it didn't work and everything sucks yeah I love that so much (laughs) and I mean the, the saying is that misery loves company, but then the also the problem is when you're miserable, you're not necessarily productive. So then it's like a feedback loop. You're stressed out. Your things aren't working. You complain about it, feel a little bit better, but you haven't actually done anything to fix it. And then it continues to happen. You know, there's like a kind of well-known, I guess, PhD trajectory where you start really optimistic and by your third and fourth year, you kind of hate everything. And then you eventually like kind of level out to when you're a fifth or sixth year and you graduate and you're like, yeah, you know, it's not, wasn't too bad. 
there's definitely like a more you can take more of a I guess more ownership over it. You know, complaining is definitely something that's healthy, but you can also then think more critically, like what can I do to change the whatever's kind of bothering me. Yeah, and I, I guess it seems that you want to avoid getting to the point where the the misery is debilitating, where you're trying to avoid your experiments or avoiding other people, which can also hamper your productivity <laughs> and just getting through those couple of rough experiments. So really great. So on that note, why do you think it's important for departments to have policies for supporting graduate student wellness as opposed to just saying, well, you're adults now. Yeah. <laughs> be well. Be well. <laughs> I mean, the obvious answer here would be that wellness is good and misery isn't, right? Or like we've been saying the word misery, but just like other other ways of being unwell, like whether it's physical or mental. And I think that it's important for departments, employers, whoever, like not just in graduate school, but also like companies, whatever, to make an intentional acknowledgement of wellness to like students or employees, because sometimes students like might not like acknowledge, like take the time to acknowledge it themselves. And I think having another person being like, actually take some time to think about this, be self-aware can really help maybe mitigate like really serious issues, like maybe later down the line. So prevention. Yeah. But I think we're kind of in the middle of kind of like a, a nationwide, maybe even like a worldwide awareness of kind of some of these things, you know, like with just more conversations about mental health and like people taking care of taking care of your mental health. I think it's just it, it's important for academia to kind of you don't want to fall behind necessarily. Like you have companies that are taking it very seriously. It can be a strategic advantage to have employees that are healthy and well and excited to work for you as opposed yeah. to employees that are miserable. Right. Yeah. One hundred percent. And I also I mean, I think like wellness in academia also has a general stigma in that people work crazy hours all the time. You can't get tenured unless you are like literally only working. Like, can you have a kid? Can you have a family? I don't know, because do you need to work harder to get tenure? And I think um, one of the professors in our department, Arjun Raj, wrote like a uh, he has a great, fantastic blog. And I think he actually wrote a blog post about like that stigma that you have to work as plus 24 hours a day and like in order to be successful and how that's not necessarily the case. And like overall academia has to get away from that mindset. Ooh, that sounds awesome. We can link it in the show notes so our listeners can like read it. Yes. Hopefully it's okay with him that I just plugged his podcast or I mean blog. I feel like most podcasters and blogs love it when people plug it. So yeah, listeners like email this to your friends. I definitely agree that that stigma exists and it's, Oh yeah. It's sort of like this, um, almost a badge of honor. Like, well, I was here 48 hours straight and I did yeah. three synthesis today. How many yeah. syntheses did you do today? It's not necessarily most productive. No one is here for that. And I even tell, like, I think this is really big with, like, undergraduate students, too. So Mike and I have both, like, taught undergraduate students. And I think lots of times, like, they're crazy. Like, and I, in undergrad, was, too. Like, I would, would like, brag about not only sleeping, like, three hours a night. And, like, there's no way I can do that now. Well, but I mean, like, yeah, like, yeah, weekly all-nighters. But, like, I feel like... It also goes down to the undergrad level. Like, why are we bragging about how little we're sleeping? Like, that's seriously detrimental to your brain. So for your guys in your official and unofficial roles, what kind of programs are you trying to implement within your department and within Gabe? Could you speak a little bit about the things you're implementing and then what sort of activities you've been able to implement on, like, the student-initiated level? And then whether you've been able to implement anything as, like, an official department policy beyond just what's student-initiated. 
Yes, that is a great question. I'll just talk about what we started briefly last year, and then I'll let Mike talk about like all the details for this year because it's a little bit more official now. Last year, the first thing we started, because we did kind of identify, you know, what do we want to do for wellness for graduate students? And one of those things is really to create like a community, a sense of community in the department. And so the first thing we did was just to have, we, we called them like wellness lunches, and they were basically lunches that we had free food and anyone could come and there wasn't anything else attached to it, like a seminar or something else. It was literally just like a free space and lunch for people to come. And we ended up having like a ton of attendance and it wasn't like people just came and got food and left. They came and sat and talked. And that's something that for like up to like an hour, I think like we had attendance up to like 30 to 50 people from the department and it would be students, sometimes faculty, um, postdoc staff. And I think even though it's like, okay, yeah, free lunch, come get food. People are like interacting and connecting there. And I think that was really like um, encouraging to us. In addition to that, we also just had coffee hours. So same kind of idea. Like you just have coffee in the morning. You can just come and get coffee and leave, or you can come and sit. And there's almost always people sitting, talking throughout that whole time that it's available. And I think, so that was kind of like how we started. Yeah. So for this year, I guess, uh, for the wellness initiative and the events that we're trying to hold. Some of them I think are really focused on just creating a sense of community, getting people together, things such as the coffee hours, lunches. We're planning to do another event actually where we bring uh, like the therapy dogs around and have just like de-stressing with therapy thought dogs, maybe cats, animals in general, I think are a great just de-stressing tool. Not that our cat is a tool, but it's <laughs> <laughs> No, I totally agree that these kinds of wellness events where like you're bringing, like you're promoting wellness and bringing it to the forefront of people's mind. And at the same time, like bringing all the people together in the same space so that this can be sort of understood that the community in general is supportive of this. And it seems like even just having this initiative is a step towards changing that overall mentality of like, we are working this crazy long hours and we are supposed to be stressed about all of these things and our experiments determine our worth and <laughs> just to kind of get over those. What has the, the feedback from the administration been on these policies from your department or whatever? And are there making any changes to the way that the department interacts with students? So then like another kind of events kind of class that we're looking at is a lot of these like skill building events. So we're working with uh, our vice provost uh, office of university life. We're trying to host a meditation event, like a be well seminar where they talk about, you know, mindfulness and how that can feed into being well and help you build skills to do that. And also potentially hosting some free yoga events that some of actually the graduate students, some of uh, the graduate students are actually yoga instructors and we're willing to kind of host these classes for free just as a way to really kind of help also carve out a space for people to kind of participate in these things. Sometimes it's hard to get off campus or get out of lab to go down to a yoga studio, but if the yoga studio is in lab, you don't really have any excuses. Um, so it's a little easier to like, you know, take the hour out of your, your day to really do that. And I think those can have, that can have a lot of benefits. I will add to that. Early last year, we tried to have like a seminar with a speaker that was very specifically about mental health and like just wellness. And it was just like in a seminar style. And it was before we really had like lunches. Actually, I think this was two years ago before we really had like lunches or coffee hours or anything that was not so official. And it didn't go over very well. And I think it didn't go over very well, partially because the speaker like 
wasn't really able to connect with the graduate students on like a close level. And it just, it was like a really like jump into like almost like a group therapy session and it just didn't go well. And I, so I actually think that having the more unstructured events first and then leading into like now that like that's been established and now having like that Mike and other wellness chairs are putting into place like the more skill building events, like those will have a better chance of being more successful now that these not so structured events have happened and been very successful. And to get back to your guys' question on the administration and have we seen pushback, um, we actually have not seen any pushback from the administration on any of these wellness events. I think they've been supportive in like providing and allowing us to use some of the budget for these things, and that's been really useful. I think that one of the things that could still help is that right now, these are all very student initiatives. So and students, especially in the organization cycle, right? So you can get one year when the student leaders really care about it, and then they're gone two years later, or they're maybe not even in the next year. And so I think that taking that up a level, like if the administration would take initiative or like take it over, could really, one, communicate to graduate students that, yes, they care too. And like, while they still are like, very generous and financially supporting it. We also like, we do truly care about this and also have it be more of a longitudinal consistent initiative versus like being very dynamic and transient year to year. To year. Mike, actually, I'll let you talk about this, but the whole, like, how can we like help see that it's worth it and the whole data thing? Yeah. So in that kind of, to try to like convince or kind of highlight to the administration how, why this is so important, we're trying to develop and get a survey out to all the graduate students that kind of is like, takes like the pulse, you could say, of like the people's, uh, the graduate students' mental health. It's pretty, it's actually interesting. Penn had a, uh, a big survey that went out, but it was for undergraduates only. That was kind of trying to take this kind of pulse of the, you know, the community. So we would really like to do something like that for graduate students. And actually, Berkeley, which I think you guys both go to Berkeley. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Berkeley in like 2015, I think, made this like really gigantic well-being report or 2014. Yeah, 2014. It's like a 60 page document where they like, I think it was the whole graduate. Yeah. Program. The results of the report might make you feel unwell. <laughs> yeah, and but I think that's important to identify and actually have quantitative data, right? Absolutely. And what I've learned from working in our department equivalent of Gabe, which is called BEAST, Bioengineering Association of Students, um, is like the present, like the the administration or like the department chairs or the program chairs, like they won't do anything unless there's data. I mean, yeah. you have to be able to say like. Only 12% of students felt very satisfied with the most recent blah, blah, blah. They're, you know, like professors, even if it's what I would call not great data, like only 25% of graduate students responded, like you have to have data or they won't do anything. If you're listening professors, like if a student comes to you and says, you know, professor, wellness is really a problem in this department. Like, I think we should be doing something about it. You know, in the hashtag me too movement, it's like, believe the women. Well, in the graduate student wellness department, when students are coming to you and saying, look, like my friends are going through these experiences, like, you know, some of your faculty colleagues aren't treating their students very well. Like we need to do something about this. Like listen and believe the students. Like, yes, data is important, but also like as a human being, when someone is suffering, don't just be like, well, I need to see the numbers on that. Be have some compassion. If your students are not well, it's not going to end well for you. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like graduate students get lost in the mix because their say might never 
outweigh that of a faculty member. And like, that can be really hard if like a faculty and student are in like a bad relationship and then the student just kind of like gets dropped off. Right. And so then that's really hard. And like that, maybe that's just one data point, but there isn't just one, like that happens to graduate students in different departments or across different schools. And like the data like actually are necessary for that, like to like uh, build a story and like build a case. And it's kind of sad that it's that, but yeah. In our last episode about mentorship, we talked about mentors and tormentors. And I think you could have a whole other episode that's dedicated to wellness for students who are in tormentor situations. And when a professor, like sometimes it could just be one professor having a bad relationship, like it's a bad fit between one professor and one student. But when it's a bad relationship between one professor and multiple students and like the students feel powerless to do something about it. And like, if the student like eventually comes to a relationship that they can deal with or leaves the program or whatever, like no one really knows except for their peers. And it's like, even if you talk to people, it's like, Oh, well that was just like a one-off. Let's just keep moving forward. Like nothing happened. It's like very frustrating. Right. And like the professor will still like keep their job or. And it's like, Oh, now they have tenure, even though they're a horrible person. Oh God. (laughs) They have have a lot of money. It's, you know, it's really sad because the professors are the one bringing the, the money to the university and the students are the ones that are doing the work, but are getting like, not necessarily no credit, right? But you're kind of, you can be very easily viewed as just like a cog in the machine. And if the professor decides that they don't get along with you. It could make your life complete hell. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. I think that concept of like power in academia is very I think you could also do like an entire podcast kind of on that because the power dynamic is very just skewed and there's no, you know, it's not like we have HR departments and even now like some private universities are trying to unionize, but unions aren't perfect either. Yeah. But when you have friends coming to you saying like, sometimes I wish I had appendicitis so that I could take two weeks off of work. It's like, we need wellness. So like professors, I know professors listen to this podcast and like, Professors, and the worst part is, I think their colleagues know who, I don't want to use the term abuse to like minimize the experience of people that undergo abuse, but yeah, but sometimes, sometimes it, is. it is. And so if professors, they have to know who their colleagues are, who are treating their students poorly. And even if it's not, maybe it's not like their colleague in their field, like you, they go to a different school, you don't know, but like, Within your own department, I think everyone knows who the professor is that treats their students the worst. Yes. And who can make changes in a department? Senior faculty. Mm-hmm. Often who treat their students bad, sometimes that's senior faculty too. But, like, yeah. do something. Like, if you know there's a faculty who has a reputation or who has had in the past at least one student who really, really struggled, reach out to their existing students. Like, how are they doing? I think faculty are the ones who make changes, and this graduate students who need the most wellness is the ones who have a bad relationship with their mentor. Like as a cat, not to categorize, but like as a category. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think too, when that happens, sometimes the graduate students in a really powerless position, because like, what are the options there? Depending on the year, it's either, do they quit? Do they try and find a new lab if they're in year four? Like if they go talk to like, somebody else poorly about their advisor or like not poorly, but just but like, like seek t- mentorship from another mentor who can supplement for your current mentors lack what they lack. 
or and, and like potentially like I've talked to students who don't even want to bring it up. They just want to keep dealing with it because they just want to be done and graduate. So they just continue to like be complacent with their situation. And like, that's sad too. Like that's not fair. And um, yeah, it's definitely an issue. It kind of underscores that your wellness in graduate school is not only specific to the person, but very dependent on the lab specifically. Yes. And so, well, it may only be 12% of the students are, you know, 100% miserable. It might be all 12% from a very specific (laughs) region. I think we see that trend pretty frequently, which is, yeah, I think one thing, again, if professors are listening or departments or really anyone, just having more frequent check-ins with graduate students and just asking how they're doing and I think it should be formalized. Like when you propose, finally propose your thesis, you have a committee. And then, you know, that committee's purpose is to, you know, bounce ideas off of, but also they can help you mediate, you know, maybe you and your, P- your PI have differences in opinion in like where the research should go. But why does that happen only in year three, year four? Or it could even be when it, when you propose could be dictated by your PI. Like I know at Penn, like you have a kind of like, we suggest you propose by this time, but I haven't proposed yet, and that that suggested time was last year, and I don't I don't think I'm going to propose until probably like fingers crossed this summer. So like having a committee of other professors that you can go to, where their whole the whole point is checking in and being like, how is your relationship with your PI? How do you feel like do you feel like you're getting what you want out of your mentor? And if not, like how can we change that? What can we do? earlier on so you don't have these students that are just going through the motions just like looking forward to graduation kind of head down just you know trying to survive when in reality like something could be done very early on that would just make it better for everyone and so to answer the question what can departments do to support student wellness i think one thing that is not only like not expensive and sort of morally obligation on the part of the department is identify which students are struggling. If there's a pattern of students who are struggling in the same labs time after time, don't just ask the students how they're doing, like address it with your colleague, their boss. Again, I don't want this to be a podcast where like students come on and bitch about faculty, but like we're not talking about an extreme number of cases in terms of professors, but we are talking about an extreme amount of misery in terms of their students. Yeah, and actually, that just from I forgot to mention it earlier. Um, one thing we did last year was we had because like Mike was just talking about how the first real check in is maybe with your like official is with your committee when you have like your three or four at ten. And one thing we did last year was we had like upper level graduate students just literally send one email to all the first years and say, "Hey, we know that you have your qualifying exam coming up in the next two months. How are you doing? Do you have any questions?" And like literally just an email and we maybe had like five people, five upper level graduate students send an email to like three first years each. And like, I didn't know what would happen. Like I was like, maybe no one will respond. But I think maybe about half of the first years asked to like meet up with the graduate student just to ask questions and and things like that. And like, that's such a simple thing. And I think that that's important for like student groups to do. But I really think that like the weight of it and the meaning of that would be so much stronger if it came from the administration, not upper level students, or maybe both. Because again, the upper level students can only do so much if there's a real issue, right? Like besides provide support. So in our department, we have a peer advising system where all the students who are invited to interview with our program are assigned to two peer advisors. 
Um, and I used to be the peer advising chair, so we would sort of match, like, one of your peer advisors would be based off of your research interests, like someone else in medical imaging. And then one of your peer advisors would kind of sort of be based off of, like, went to the same undergrad as you, or, like, you both love Ultimate Frisbee, or, like, you both um, have identified as wanting to be matched with a advisor from the LGBTQ community or whatever. And then your peer advisor, whether or not, like, if you don't come to our program, like, that's too bad. You should have come here. If you don't come to our program, like that's fine, go somewhere else. But if you do end up matriculating in our program, your peer advisor stays with you or both of them stay with you throughout your time here. And so as peer advising chairs, like we will ping all the peer advisors to be like, hey, first years have this thing coming up, like touching with your peer advisee. So it's more of a longitudinal relationship with an older peer advisor. And then sometimes the first year is like, yeah, my peer advisor never emails me. So we'll like mash them up with someone else. But having that as, like, an official thing where the department, like, students match the peer advisees, but, like, the department, like, sanctions and, like, pays for sometimes you'd have lunch together. Yeah. I think another thing that Megan's comment reminded me about last year is our department actually had, like, an internal review where they gave a voice to, like, some graduate students. We got together with, sorry, it was an external review. So I guess, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, like, some other... uh, Professors from other schools came by and then met with a bunch of the graduate students and they like kind of checked in. And apparently that happens once every six years, which to me doesn't seem like it's enough because that's like once per graduate student. So you can you really like implement any change, like do any changes really get implemented in that timeline? And it just seems like that's something that should be done internally too, just more often. Like, again, I think it really just comes back to listening and like taking the pulse of like, what's going on and trying to, yeah, just make the changes that are necessary that are going to make everyone happier. Absolutely. So we've talked about like what departments can do or should be doing um, to support student wellness, but what about when it comes to graduate students taking charge of our own wellness? Do you guys have any suggestions for our listeners? Yes. So one thing that I have found, I read the the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And like, there's some things in that book that I really think are good. There's some that I don't agree with so much. But one thing that it did kind of encourage me to do is really evaluate like my own values. So like, even like over the course of the year, like I didn't even read this book all in one chunk, but it kind of made me like if something occurred to me, like something in my life, like, you know, what I really like value that like one thing would just be like considering the other perspective, for example, like that's one of my values. Like if you're in a disagreement with someone, like really try and consider what they see, but just like making a list of those or it could even be something as small as like, you know, I value, well, maybe this isn't small, but I value being ethical in my research, like something like that. And I think that like really self evaluating what is important to you is really important for wellness and how you like live your day-to-day life. And I think that really relates to a graduate student or anyone's identity. We already talked about like, if people are too attached to their work, then they might identify themselves by their work. People could identify themselves by um, a relationship to their family or to like a significant other or to how much money they have. And I think if you can find a way to identify with your values. That's something you can truly control. Um, all those other things, your work, your like your how much money you have, there's always external things that are affecting that, including other people. But your values, you can always stay true to. And I think that having that and like literally writing it down can really help in times of like turmoil or when you're not feeling well, like why don't I? Is it because something I'm doing is externally affected or doesn't align with my values. So I think that is something that I've found very helpful. 
Yeah, I also agree with that. This is concept. I think I've said a few times of just like checking in with, you know, with others, but also with yourself. And just to kind of add on to that, that can be really hard to do. I don't think I'm very good. It's at really it. hard to do. Um, so sometimes you need help. And I think the single best thing that I've done for my to try to take charge of my own wellness was to start going to therapy. And there's a big stigma around, you know, going to therapy and like what therapy is sitting on a couch, you know, talking about your childhood to try to figure out like where all your problems come from. And that can be therapy if you want to do therapy like that. And that could actually be really helpful and really useful to kind of understand like your past and reflect on your past and how that has kind of shaped your identity and like your values. But therapy can also be really practical, having someone to listen to you and to check in and to kind of point out these, you know, maybe disconnects with what you value and what you're doing or point out that, you know, you're using the word should a lot and really check in and like challenge yourself. I think that has been probably the single best thing I've done in terms of trying to take control of my happiness and actually actively work towards being just a happier and healthier person. And piggybacking off your comment about therapy, Mike, I would just encourage our listeners, like, I've definitely talked to friends who are like, yeah, I went to therapy, but like the therapist said like blah, blah, blah thing. And I really didn't agree. And we just didn't really vibe. And like, that's who the university assigned me. So like, that's who I went to, but like therapy is worth doing and it's worth doing right. So if you don't have a good match with your therapist the first time, just ask for a different one and give it another go. Because like Mike said, it is very valuable. So it's hard to like, start, but also even harder to restart, but don't be afraid to restart either. Yeah. And just an anecdote for that. So I've probably been going to therapy for almost five years now on and off with different therapists. And yeah, some of them were just not very good, but I kind of had had enough good experiences to know that this person wasn't that great. And sometimes it can be hard if your first therapist that you go to, you don't, you don't, yeah, you don't connect with, you don't think they're not really helping you and you're, you can generalize and be like, oh no, therapy is not for me. But yeah, so I think what you said, like it is definitely worth, you know, trying again and also be aware that there are different types of therapy and there's different things that, you know, you can focus on. So a good place to start is always at, you know, your, your school's kind of mental health resources. The only thing about that is they are very overworked, usually understaffed. And they oftentimes, at least at Penn, they don't really treat like longer term than like a semester, maybe, maybe two semesters. So what they can do often is refer you to someone else outside. And then it becomes maybe a pressure with like, you know, costs, like maybe you don't want to, you don't think you can spend that much money on therapy, but usually your health insurance, especially as a graduate student, I think will cover it with like a very small copay. And I think, yeah, it's been worth every single penny I've spent, if not like, way more. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I just one thing I think that could be important, especially for people that don't necessarily maybe have like the best relationships with their, you know, their mentors is if you don't feel comfortable being like, I really need time because I'm depressed or I'm not well, and I just need this space. Like one thing that you can always frame it as is you can try to make like this productivity argument where I'm not being productive right now and I need space and I need time so I can deal with these issues that are making me not productive. So when I come back, I can be more productive. And I think that will resonate with a lot of advisors, you know, because they want you to be productive. They want output. And it's kind of unfortunate because again, that's kind of treating you like a cog in the machine. But I just think that could be like a helpful tip 
for people that might not be comfortable being like opening up and really sharing a lot of like emotional connection with their advisor. Can I add to the therapy conversation too? Sure. So I like have not gone to therapy as much, but I did recently start going like in the past two months. The reason why was because I, I've had like a lot of head injuries and I was like very anxious about like a lot of like general anxiety and especially about like being hurt again, like falling or like crashing on a bike or something. And so I was referred to it like, maybe you should just go talk about this. And I was pretty skeptical, like admittedly so. And that's part of like the stigma thing, but I found that it's been, it's been very helpful. And I mean, there are things that like my therapist has pointed out to me that I haven't even realized. And like, I like to think that I'm a self-aware person, but there's always things that you are not self-aware of. And a lot of it comes up just like daily in like the lab. A good example is like these different thinking traps that sometimes people get in with like generalized anxiety. And one of them would be like disqualifying positives. So, so many times I'll be like, I didn't do anything today or, Oh, I was so unproductive this week. And like, if you almost think about like, a third party telling you you're unproductive. Like if someone were to tell me like you were unproductive today, I would be like, Oh my gosh, like shut up. Yes, I was. I did like a, B and C, but like, why do I tell myself that even if somebody else were to tell that I would like get mad. And so I think I would just advocate for it too. And, um, I think that I just agree with everything that's already been said. <laughs> Everyone needs therapy. <laughs> so Obviously, we know that therapy and talking with a trusted counselor that's like a professional and who's paid to like listen to you and help you with your problems can be really valuable. But what about when that isn't quite enough to meet your needs as far as mental health? That's a great question. And I think that really lends itself to having a serious kind of discussion about, you know, medication and the types of options that are available. And that definitely, that definitely happens. You know, that's the, the case. And the way I view medication for these types of depression or anxiety or any other type of mental illness, it goes hand in hand with therapy. So to kind of put it into something maybe a little bit more relatable, you know, like imagine you have a, a sprained ankle or you broke your leg and you need to go to physical therapy. So you can re be rehabilitated, but you also, you know, you're taking painkillers, you're taking other medication to kind of work together to get you back to 100%. And for antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication, it's really the same thing. And I'm speaking from, I guess, experience having taken and been on and still on some antidepressants. Sometimes you just need that help. You need that extra boost to really help you focus on what's important. If you're overworked and stressed, anxious, depressed, you need, you know, mental therapy to help you correct your thought patterns, but you can treat the, a lot of the symptoms through medication. And in, I think for me, I was very, very against ever taking medication because when you do, there's a stigma that you can't handle things yourself. You're a failure. You know, you, you, you need to be medicated to be happy. There's something wrong with you. And I think that stigma really needs to go away because that's not the case at all. And there are actually, you know, like biological reasons for why these medications might work and why you might need these medications. But also it doesn't need to be permanent. And even if it does need to be permanent, you know, if someone has high blood pressure or diabetes, you're not going to be like, oh, you do something so you're, you're not healthy enough that you can't like live without these medications. Like why, why is it different for these mental health issues? I, I really think it shouldn't be. So I think that is a very, very important option to consider. And there just 
as a English, especially in graduate school, I think we need to be a little bit more open to talking about that, those issues. Yes. And thank you so much for sharing that, Mike. I totally agree. And I think most of our listeners would say, yes, you know, we really do need to remove the stigma around medication for mental illnesses because it's no different than physical illnesses. But then like when it gets down to it and when it's you who is recognizing that need within yourself, it really takes these kinds of open and honest conversations about personal experiences of your peers to make people really understand that like, yes, it could be for them. And like, yes, it, it's okay. So thank you so much for sharing. Like, it's not easy. And we really appreciate your perspective. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, I do think sharing is important. Just having talked to some people, I know people that they come off as being like the happiest people ever, you know, you feel like they have their whole life together. And then it wasn't until later on that I found out like they've been on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication until yeah, or since they've been like 18 through high school. Science works, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like we're all here doing science because we believe in the process. There's a reason why these things work. So I do think being able to talk about it just makes it a lot easier for people to consider. So I would definitely, if people are in a rough spot where the therapy is not working, just really seriously consider those options. Absolutely. What advice do you have for taking time for non-graduate school related hobbies and how do you balance this with pushback that might come for people thinking that you're spending too much time away from lab? Yeah. So one thing that I do for like physical, but also equally mental wellness, um, which some might not be obviously apparent is run a lot. I really enjoy it. And I have like found that it's like good for me for many reasons. So it's kind of like my way to like escape. Like my brain is like, I know sometimes when people go on runs, they're like, I'm going to think about all these things. And I actually like, don't think at all. Like I'll be like very like mindfully doing it. Like how are my feet hitting the ground? Or I'm just going to do this and not actually think about anything. I found for me that being part of like a running community also has been very beneficial to my wellness. So I know that for me, I won't prioritize running unless I have like a training plan. And so I have this awesome coach. His name is, name is John Goldthorpe. He has a website, fixerrun.com. You should go visit him. Um, <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> but he writes me a training plan. And like, he's also the coach along with Carrie Smith, the other coach for this team called Philly Surge Running. And everyone in this community is so optimistic. And I know sometimes with graduate students, like pessimism can be like prevalent, not all the time, but sometimes. Yes, exactly. So being a part of Philly Surge Running is also gives a lot of perspective on like what's important in life. And sometimes you get sucked into a day of long experiments and research. And like, that just seems like what's the most important and interacting with people who aren't graduate students sometimes, or who maybe don't want to hear you complain about it can be really good for that. I love my friends in graduate school and I need them desperately for like my own sanity, but it is nice to have those people and that outlet that maybe isn't a part of like what you're involved in. I also just think that part of being self-aware is knowing what works best for you. And I was talking about having like a training program and how that's really helpful for me. I think it's the way that I work best in terms of being accountable and having someone be like, okay, you're going to run this and this and this on these days. It just makes it like a non-negotiable thing. And with that comes regularity and sleep, like what I eat, 
and just being overall physically well, which 100% like augments like mental wellness. Like I found in like month periods of time when I haven't been like on some kind of training plan that like I just end up working way too much. I get tons of headaches. I don't sleep enough. And then when I get back on some sort of schedule, it like all kind of baselines into like what I know is best for me. And so I think that's different for everyone. Some people do better with like mornings to themselves or like nights to themselves or like some people are night owls or like early morning people. Um, And I think that's all a part of self-awareness. And like, I'm lucky to have found that in terms of like running. Yeah. So I guess piggyback off of that and kind of understanding what works for you. I think that is very, very important. And what I mean is, you know, we've all been in lab or, you know, working and it's kind of, sometimes it's hard for people to, you know, stop. It's hard for you to find a good cutoff time. Maybe your experiment failed and you are trying to like scramble to do it again and you're planning to stay really late, you know, to, to do all this work. So if you have trouble leaving lab, you can try, like what I've been trying to do is really take the mornings to really do things that are important for my mental, physical, emotional health. For example, maybe journaling in the morning or working out in the morning before I get to lab. So I can like kind of prioritize that, not necessarily over lab, but I'm prioritizing that so that I know I get that done for me during the day. And then I can kind of go to lab and put out all the fires and try to get my work done. And overall, I found that it's actually made me more productive to do that because I'm getting a good start to the day and I go to lab with more energy and I'm able to then really focus a lot better than before when I would kind of go in and take me a while to get started and then I would stay late and I'd be disappointed in myself for not having taken care of my other kind of goals and obligations. Oh, another trick that I've heard that can be effective in terms of if you feel like you need to leave the lab to like do your hobby or meet with your friends but you feel like you might get pushback is if someone asks, just be like, Oh yeah, I have an appointment. Like they don't need to know that it's an appointment to go to yoga class or like an appointment <laughs> to meet your friend for an early happy hour. Like yeah. just call it an appointment and, and do what you need one to do. Thing I, I've been doing a lot. This like, I do a lot in the winter actually, is if I don't get up to run in the morning, I'll leave lab at like three or four and run before the sun goes down and then go back to lab for a couple hours when no one's there. And I actually get more work done. And like, I know that that schedule like works well for me and I don't tell anyone I'm leaving. I just leave. And then I just come, I leave my stuff in my desk and I come back a couple hours later. Now everyone in the lab will listen to this and know, and that's fine. <laughs> Wait, so you're running for a couple of hours. Are you, tell us about your, so I, speaking of you, Megan, taking like three or four hours for your runs, I heard that you were recently one of Philadelphia's running stars. So tell us more about your running based accomplishments. <laughs> well, I would certainly not call it one of Philadelphia's running stars. Oh, I would. It's okay. By any means, but I like it. I ran for the first time. I ran the Boston Marathon last year, and that was such a great experience. That was great. And like, I mean, that just goes back to like having things other, like having hobbies other than lab, and like putting things in perspective. And I'm doing it again this year, so I'm like kind of anxious about ramping up mileage, but it's going well so far, despite the cold. Megan, Megan ran outside on the coldest day of the year. <laughs> The coldest day of the year. And I can't I can't miss my, my running appointment. I just ran like 10 miles. I can't explain it. I think someone recently asked me, they're like, what gets you out the door every day? And I'm like, I don't really know. I think it's just like I now associate running with so many things. Like I like it. And I also associate it with so many good things and like good emotions that like whether that's like just generally being healthy or like I have great friends because of running. And like I think 
all of those things combined. It's, it's hard to articulate, but that's probably the best way I could describe it. Okay, so to sort of wrap things up, do you have any resources that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, so one thing that Mike actually introduced me to was, and you guys might have heard of it, or listeners might, but the meditation app Headspace is amazing, and I have found it super helpful. I don't know, have you guys heard of this? No, tell us more. Okay, well, it's an app, and you can... It has tons of different types of meditation like packages. So it has like a general one, just like general meditation, but then it has ones that are specific to different things. It could be something like anxiety, depression, focus. I thought, I thought the focus um, one was really good for, I was really getting like blocked when I was like trying to write. Like, and I thought actually thinking about focus as a soft focus, not a very intense thing was like really helpful for me with like writing papers. And it has things about like working out or relationships. Or creativity. Yeah. Like yeah. tons. And it's just like, it even has like really short ones that are like, if you're freaking out, which I have gone into the bathroom at work and listened to in times of stress, it's like three minutes long. And you know, like maybe something is going in lab and you're like, Oh my gosh, I can't handle this. And it's just, it's great. How do you say his name? Andy Puttycomb. I yeah. believe. But anyway, it's his, his voice is the most soothing voice I think I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a couple books that I would recommend. So Mike also recommended this to me, but The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle is very good in terms of like perspective, attachment. The book that I mentioned in terms of values was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Also, um, if you're not necessarily into the whole like maybe more f- fluffily written like <laughs> new earth type of self-help There's a very practical book that I read that I actually was very surprised because I think it had a lot of good thoughts and it's written in a very funny way. And it's called the subtle art of not giving a fuck by Mark Manson, I believe is also another kind of just like book that helps you think about like what your values are and like kind of really frame your life in a way that you're prioritizing what you, as the author says, give a fuck about. (laughs) Awesome. Is it time for shameless plug time? Yeah. Please shamelessly plug yourself, your research. Like if you have a Twitter, like anything you want our listeners to like do or read about you or whatever, like tell us. I will just reiterate that I'm going to shameless plug like my like running club again and like my coaches just because they have really like helped me so much since I moved to Philly. It's Philly Surge Running and John Goldthorpe and Carrie Smith are the coaches. So there's my shameless plug for that. Why don't you do your shout out to wellness? And then we'll yeah, do I also have to give a shout out to uh, the wellness committee or chairs. So along with me, there are two others, uh, Mina Chen and Erin Berlu. And honestly, without them, this program would not be nearly as successful. So shout out to them. I think we need to give a shout out to our main source of happiness, which is our cat Lux. He's amazing. And you should follow him on the PhD cat and Twitter. Underscores. <laughs> yeah, underscore the underscore PhD underscore cat. His goal is to retweet copies of bio archive papers while putting somewhat kind of funny captions on yeah. them about cat life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think there was one recently that was like, I'm eating tuna and reading this great bio archive paper. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's like it's an early Twitter. So more things that are amazing are to come. But we definitely have to shameless plug our cat because he's great. 
Yeah, I guess just to plug my research, I work in um, a spine pain research lab, and we study all different types of chronic pain mechanisms, whether it's like joint pain, which is my project specifically, like any kind of like knee or hip or um, like the TMJ in your jaw. But we also do a lot of um, stuff with other pain mechanisms, like neuropathic pain that could happen if you have like a nerve root compression from like you slipped a disc in your back and now you have like chronic back pain. So we kind of study the biomechanics and then also what are the ways that we can stop those like chronic pain mechanisms from happening. So that's that's what I do. And your lab is called? Our lab is called the Spine Pain Research Lab, and my advisor is Dr. Beth Winkelstein. There's a website. You can check it out. Yeah, and so I am a member of the Chow Lab at the University of Pennsylvania uh, with Brian Chow as uh, my awesome advisor. And I focus on protein engineering and designing new protein tools de novo. So things that don't have any sequence similarity. That's to hard. Exist. Yes, it's very hard. That's <laughs> why I, I focus so much on my own wellness. <laughs> <laughs> but designing protein tools de novo for really we're interested in designing new like fluorescent proteins and sensors that can help us, you know, get information out of cells. And I would also just shout out my entire lab because they are amazing and also keep me sane. And too many people to shout out individually. Uh, I will shout out my lab too. My lab is wonderful and they help me get through a lot of the ups and downs of grad school. That's awesome. So final shameless plug is our own shameless plug for this podcast. We thank you to all the listeners who have reviewed this podcast on the iTunes store. Mike, one of the names you mentioned as one of your co-wellness chairs, like I'm pretty sure she also reviewed it on the iTunes store. So thank you to Erin. I didn't know, but someone named Erin reviewed us. So I assume it's your friend named Erin. Yeah, she's you guys. So. Oh, yay. <laughs> but... What we've noticed, I mean, obviously follow the podcast on iTunes and on Twitter and subscribe and rate our podcast, but most people find out about this podcast from their friends. So this past week, one of our listeners listened to our mentorship episode and was like, this is so amazing. I'm going to send it to my entire institute. And it just happened to be that she was from Canada. So I saw the next day we had like 60 new listeners from Canada. So this is some data underscoring the fact that like <laughs> our podcast gets new listeners from people telling their friends about our podcast. So a lot of people have expressed to Kayla and me that they like the podcast and they think that we're having important conversations. Um, so tell these important conversations to other people, like help more listeners find us. We can't officially announce it yet, but let's just say that we have some new money for the podcast from a grant that we're going to be using to do like a super amazing event. That's going to bring in some like amazing, amazing content so, like, the more listeners we can have, the better. So just, like, tell your friends about this podcast or, like, you should just email this podcast to any listserv. Just kidding. <laughs> but if there's, like, if there's, like, a relevant le- wellness-related listserv or, like, people that you know, just share this podcast with your friends. Like, follow us on Twitter if you want, but, like, really just share this with your friends. Yes. Finally, huge thank you to our wonderful guests today, Megan and yes. Mike. I feel like this episode, for some listeners, like, they should still go to therapy, but this was like a therapy session. Thank you for all of your input and wisdom and like sharing your own personal stories. Thank you guys for giving us a voice to talk about these very important issues, not shying away from having difficult conversations. It's really, really awesome what you guys have built here. Yes, agreed. Thank you. Thank you so much. 